Hello and welcome to 10 by 9 where 9 people have up to 10 minutes each to tell a true story from their own life. I'm Paul Doran and this is the 10 by 9 podcast. It's almost 10 years since Padre Gotuma and I started 10 by 9 in the black box in Belfast. In that time we've heard hundreds and hundreds of true stories covering every human experience you could think of. We loved it then and we love it now. Our 10 by 9s are taking place on Zoom at the moment, so you can join in wherever you are in the world. That may change, but we'll let you know as soon as we know. Now, there are three stories in this podcast, and brace yourselves, because these are hot stories. The theme was sexy, so get a cold shower and dive in. The stories were told on Wednesday, May 29th, and they were all amazing. Our first story comes from a first-timer, so a big welcome to Lynn Graham. If only I'd been able to find that scarf. It was as a 15-year-old that I met my first love. And boy, did I think he was hot. Then he opened his mouth and sang, Wake up, Maggie, I think I've got something to say to you. And I was well and truly smitten after those first few seconds on top of the pops in 1971. Playing football and twirling the microphone stand around on stage like a baton twirler on the 12th of July. What highs and lows I've experienced with him over the years. The ecstasy of buying my first LP of his, every picture tells a story. The 12 by 12 inch sleeve, an artwork in its own right. And writing my name and the date on it, as we did before the CD came along. Then a few days later, the agony of finding it, leaning up against a hot radiator, rendering it unplayable. Someone who will remain nameless as they may be listening to 10 by 9 tonight, had left it there, presumably when the radiator was cold. But then again, this family member was not a Rod Stewart fan at the time. I think it was to stop my hysterics that either my mum or dad decided to replace it. When I heard he was coming to play in Belfast, and getting tickets for what would have been my first Rod concert, only for it to be canceled because of the troubles. To say I was devastated would be an understatement. Wonderful memories of island hopping in Greece with a rucksack as a student. And after a few retsinas, a cheap Greek wine similar in taste to turpentine, grabbing the nearest broom to act as my microphone, to be twirled around as I ran my fingers through my hair and performed my party piece. Maggie May, of course. I must add that the turpentine, also known as Retsina, had to be diluted with Greek lemonade to render it drinkable. It was during one of these carefree student summers in the idyllic Greek islands that I met Hazel from Manchester, 
another huge Rod fan, who performed with me on the dance floor, on the balmy Retsina and Lemonada fueled evenings in the back garden of Taki's Taverna in Corfu. It surprises me to this day that the 45 on the jukebox didn't mysteriously disappear to stop Maggie May blasting out yet again. Hazel from Manchester and I kept in touch. And yes, you've guessed it. She got tickets for us to see Rob the Maud at the King's Hall, Bellevue, Manchester on Saturday, December the 2nd, 1978 at 8 p.m. I was shaking so much at the thought of seeing him. I could barely speak, which is very unusual for me. Realizing I was double booked that weekend, I didn't hesitate in ringing my friend Catherine. You know that Dublin weekend we've booked? Well, I can't go, but I'm happy to pay my whack. Luckily, there were a crowd of us due to go, so I wasn't letting anyone down. And thankfully, someone took my place. Not that I would have minded paying for a weekend I wasn't going to go on if it meant seeing Rod. Now, these concert tickets weren't just any old concert tickets. They were in the stalls near the stage. I could see the beads of sweat rolling down his face. The skin-tight black leggings, diamante belt, leopard print jacket. And the first time he asked me, do you think I'm sexy? There are no words to describe that night. I was blown away by this dynamo on stage. Fast forward exactly 38 years to the 2nd of December 2016. And after seeing him live on many occasions over the years, I was about to go to my last ever Rod concert, this time in Birmingham. Why last? Well, because as a VIP ticket holder this time, I knew our seats were in the middle of the second row from the stage and it would be up there with the first time. I thought, begin and end on a high. The atmosphere was electric with anticipation. And when he came on stage, the tears streamed uncontrollably down my face. My longest lasting love affair. The other love of my life, my husband was with me. And after nearly 30 years married to me, he'd become a fan too. At one point, Rod stepped off the stage towards us and started shaking hands. I stretched out, calling his name. Rod, Rod, my heart pounding. But as I was now 60, it was to the younger and sexier fans or members of his tartan army he reached out to. If only I'd been able to find that scarf, the one I bought at my first concert in Manchester 
the blondes have more fun to 1978. I'd have had it with me. And I'm sure he would have reached out or at least reacted to the scarf, that is. If only I'd been two rows from the front in 1978, I wouldn't have needed to distract him with a scarf. He'd have definitely reached out to me, the young, sexy, 22-year-old, slim, without a grey hair in sight. Sir Rod Stewart is now 76, and I always think he's sexy. As for that scarf, having hunted high and low for it before the Birmingham concert in 2016, I found it in a drawer that I was clearing out about a week later. Maybe, after all, I'll have to make it to another Rod gig with my scarf. Oh, Lynn, what a wonderful story. Thank you so much. If anyone out there knows Rod Stewart, pass it on. Lynn's mother died recently, so we send our sympathies, but Lynn told me she shared the story with her the night before her death, which is so beautiful. And you can see Lynn tell that story with her scarf on our YouTube channel. Practically all the stories from our Zoom events are there in bite-sized chunks going right back to April 2020. Okay, next up is the wonderful Miriam Ullman. Although it happened a while ago now, it still manages to both amuse and intrigue me when I think back. It happened in Italy, in Tuscany to be precise. I was there on a course during a summer in the company of a group of women from all over Europe. And as serendipity would have it, time coincided perfectly with the fiesta in the nearest large town, Castellina in Chianti. We were used to the town by day, but there's something about those Southern European balmy summer nights that has a particular quality, the effect of which is a loosening of the body and the mind, letting the detritus of the day simply fall away. We arrived into town, winding our way through the small streets, walking over the vast paving stones polished by millions of footsteps over hundreds of years along narrow streets lined with old shops and homes and emerging into the huge piazza. Lit by thousands of lights, looping from one lamppost to the next lamppost, the cream floored square was clear and on the old stone seating surrounding it sat a random assortment of people, mostly older groups and couples waiting in anticipation for the party to start. All of this was overlooked by an ancient collection of yellow limestone and sandstone buildings, some of which had small balconies with the occupants leaning out, arms along their balconies, heads swiveling one way and then the other, nothing been missed. We found, found a group of tables and chairs, enough for us all, to the back and to the side of the square, providing a good view but not overstepping our place as visitors or being in danger of usurping local people. Wine by the carafe was procured and there we sat, along with a handful of locals waiting. Deliberately, we had come an hour later than the advertised start time, still way too early. But what's not to like about passing time on a warm summer evening in Tuscany with fun in the air? Slowly, the level of activity rose. 
the queue began to form for predictably sublime Italian food served from trestle tables along the back of the square. We got our food ticket, queued, and by the time we sat down, food in hand, the tempo had risen. Sound levels were being checked, the green light given, and a band at the far end of the square began playing with brass instruments being dominant and the volume set high. The number of people was multiplying exponentially. Children were playing, chasing games and shrieking excitedly. The decibel level upped, darkness descended. The party was, it seemed, now getting started. The, the square began to fill with the scattering of children playing or dancing and older couples familiar and sure of one another after years of dancing together, taking all the space they needed before the square became too full. Over the next hour or so, the numbers grew, filling the square with dancers, and within our group, glances were exchanged, would we or wouldn't we get up to dance? It was then that a man approached our tables and walked, hand out, towards me. I knew before I stood up to take his hand that I would be taller than he, and I was. He was likely four inches shorter than I was. With his open neck check shirt, trousers tightly held in place by a belt, something about him told me that he worked on the land. And as I took his hand, this was confirmed by the hard calloused palm into which I placed mine. His face and neck browned to leather by daily exposure to the sun. An unassuming Italian man in his late fifties maybe, out to enjoy the night, not afraid to cross a square into a group of foreign women and ask for a dance. He led me out onto the floor of the piazza and as he looked towards the band, nodded me and waited for the music, he placed his right hand squarely and firmly in the small of my back, his fingers spread and pressured against me. He took my right hand Raising and extending our joined arms and instinctively I placed my hand on his shoulder. We waited, poised, and then in response to the music, we started moving. Utter dismay was my first response. And then a speedy recalibration as I thought through any previous experience of being danced with. And then sheer delight took over. This was utterly new. His hand firmly in the small of my back, almost lifting me, his other hand leading. All I had to do was to surrender. Nothing else was required of me as we glided up and down the square, then crossing and recrossing diagonally, floating it seems around this Tuscan piazza, fizzing with people. There was no conversation. If I recall it correctly, there was minimum eye contact. None was required. All that was required was in unison to move, to drift around the square on this balmy night amid the noise and the clamour following the music. I was mesmerised and I was amazed, not just by this improbable encounter, not just by feeling that reality had been suspended, but by this new discovery. I could dance. I mean, I could really dance with the right partner. This was my Fred and I was his ginger for one dance only and what a dance in such a truly amazing and glorious place. And then as had to happen, the music stopped 
we stood still for a moment as if to allow reality to creep in. He then moved away, bowed graciously, indicated with his hand the way back to my table, led me to my seat, bowed again, joined his hands in a prayer-like move, which I read as a thank you. And with that, he turned around and disappeared back into the crowd. Thanks so much, Miriam. You made me long for the warm cobblestones of Tuscany. That gorgeous story. Now, as you know, 10 by 9 is always free and always will be, but we do have a Patreon page if you'd like to help cover our overheads and keep us going through this period. We're so thankful to everyone who has donated. If you don't like Patreon, you can give via PayPal. Just look us up using our email address, which is story at 10by9.com. That is story at 10by9.com. Equally, you can just sit back and support us by turning up, by listening and enjoying. Our next storyteller, though, is a 10 by 9 regular. Although we hadn't seen him for a few months, but he came storming back with this amazing and hilarious story. Take it away, Mr. Showbiz, Jim Livingston. My mother was a singer, a very famous singer, in fact. In the 1950s and 60s, while I was at school, she achieved international fame, selling millions of records and performing in many of the greatest concert venues across the world. London Palladium, Royal Albert Hall, New York's Carnegie Hall, Sydney Opera House, to name just a few. She was Bridie Gallagher, known as the girl from Donegal. A journalist a few years ago described her as Ireland's first pop star. Her most popular songs were The Voice of County Armagh, Mother's Love's a Blessing and Homes of Donegal, but there were many others. Her career lasted well into the 1990s and saw many changes in the entertainment scene, especially in Ireland and Britain. In the 1970s, ballrooms and variety theatres gave way to cabaret lounges and discos. And the cabaret in particular were popular for customers could see their favourite artists, have a drink, and in some cases, even a meal at the same time. By then, I was a university student. I loved all kinds of music and played the guitar and piano. And for a number of those years, my mother, Bridie, brought me on tours to play for her in venues across Ireland, Britain and North America. It was a glamorous, exciting but exhausting experience, which I still look back on with fondness. Travelling widely, meeting many fabulous stars of show business, performing in wonderful and not so wonderful cabaret venues, and meeting many, many extraordinary people. One in particular stands out. The Bush in Shepherd's Bush in London was one of London's premier Irish clubs during the 1970s. It was run by a Kerry man called Buddy Sugru, who years earlier had performed as a circus strongman and was a shrewd businessman who knew how to make money. Indeed, it was him that persuaded Muhammad Ali to box at Croke Park in about 1973, I think it was. Bridie had been contracted to appear for a week, that's six nights actually, as the star attraction at the bush in the summer of 1974. The club was enormous with several bars, restaurant and a cabaret room that seated many hundreds of patrons. Every night I played with the resident band when Bridie was performing, having first done a rehearsal on the Monday afternoon shortly after we arrived. Preceding her each night, there were performances by a comedian, 
and a troupe of Irish dancers, as well as the resident band themselves. Each night was a sellout. The atmosphere was electric throughout the week and Bridie was thrilled and importantly, so was Buddy. She received standing ovations every single night with cries of more, more resounding across the room. Eventually by the Friday, Buddy approached Bridie and asked if she could possibly manage to do an extra show on the Sunday at lunchtime. Saturday night was contracted as her last performance and we were due to fly back to Belfast on the Sunday afternoon. But Buddy offered a substantial additional performance fee in return for that extra performance. So Brady agreed. I contacted the airline and was able to switch our flight home to a later one in the day. And then I booked a taxi to transport us to Heathrow on the Sunday evening, just in time for our flight. It was all quite breathtaking, but quite exhilarating at the same time. By Sunday morning, I was exhausted after the week, but I dragged myself out of bed, had an early breakfast and then taxied to the bush for our final performance. I was really quite intrigued as to what to expect from a Sunday lunchtime cabaret. To be honest, it was a novel experience. A lunchtime cabaret, would the, would the crowd be different? Would the atmosphere be different? not being at night. We got to the bush just about 11 and the rest of the band were already doing their sound check. It was then I learned that there would be a couple of changes in the acts performing before Bridie, with different comedian for a start and then the Irish dancing troupe during, uh, who had performed throughout the week were nowhere to be seen. The band leader pointed to a woman at the bar and said, she's the dancer today instead of the dance troupe probably after Bridie's finished, if you don't mind. By the way, would you mind staying on and playing with us? Because we could do with the guitar when we're doing the dance girl. I was chuffed to be asked and readily agreed. Up in the dressing room, Bridie was getting ready and I mentioned to her that the band had asked me to stay on with them to accompany the girl dancer. She smiled and nodded. Good, a bit of variety is good for us all. You'll learn something more. And the cabaret started at one o'clock, with Sunday roasts being scoffed at nearly every table and the band playing background music. Then the comedian did his act and finally Bridie was on stage at 2pm. As before, she stormed the room, as they used to say. The crowd went wild and again, as so often before, cries of more, more at the end. After several encores, she turned to the band and me and thanked us for the great support, and then finally left the stage. She waved to the crowd and me and headed off to the dressing rooms, which were upstairs, where she would change and I no doubt have a celebratory and well-deserved glass of whiskey. Meanwhile on stage, the band leader was thanking Bridie and the crowd and the comedian for making it a very special lunchtime show. Then he announced the further artist, all the way from Galway, he said. The Irish dancer, I thought. The band leader passed over the sheet music, which I set on the stand in front of me. To the backing of a drum roll, he shouted into the mic, ladies and gentlemen, please give a big welcome to the gorgeous Galway girl. I looked at the music, chord A major, then E major. I poised to hit the strings, and then the keyboardist started 
da 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 but not Irish dancing steps. I realized with terror, she was a stripper. Sweat was pouring down my face. I tried as best I could to play the music, but kept faltering as more and more bits of the woman's attire were cast aside, one bit landing on my shoe. Somehow I kept up with the rest of the band. I saw the faces of the crowd some men laughing and leering, some sitting quite sullen, women roaring disapproval while some were drunkenly cheering. It was a cauldron of boiling emotions. What I noticed most was the dancer's facial expression. When she faced the audience, especially the men, it was alluring and pouting lips. But when she turned her back on the audience and faced us, the band, it was the face of the most incredibly bored woman I had ever set eyes on. After 10 minutes, she finished, thankfully retaining a little modesty by not taking off all her clothes, which I thought was entirely apt for an Irish club. She left the stage to a mixture of wild cheering and from some men and booze from some of the women. Then the band, paradoxically, I thought, struck up the national anthem and everyone stood respectfully and then the show was over. I unplugged my sweat-stained guitar and stumbled off and up the stairs to the dressing rooms. Bridie was there chatting loudly with Buddy and some friends. Her room was quite distant from the cabaret room. I realised she obviously had not heard the crowd or the music. Well, Jim, how did the wee dancer go? Again, I froze. I mean, how do you tell your mother, your sainted Catholic mother, who I never in my life heard even once use the word sexy, that you've just performed on stage with a stripper? She was very good, Mum. She did the waves of Tory. We'll need to get the taxi. Hurry. The taxi will be here soon. Let's go. <laughs> the waves of Tory, indeed. Oh my goodness! <laughs> oh, thank uh, you, thank you. That's so funny. Did you ever? Did you? Did you? Oh, I, I don't doubt it. Did you? I've heard of those places in London. Mm. Well, oh. what, what, I, what I didn't, re I only discovered afterwards because I went back down to the bar. I met the girl from Galway. She was lovely, actually. Single mother, obviously. Uh, but um, this was her job. This is how she made money. And uh, it transpired that in the mid-70s, nearly every pub in London at lunchtime on a Sunday had a stripper. Some of them had male strippers. And it, it, it just blew my mind that on a Sunday of all days, you know, mm -hmm. and, and I'm told that, that some of them actually had families who had just been to Mass and then came <laughs> in for the Sunday lunch. <laughs> Which is why, of course, the girls never took everything off. Oh, that, would, that would have been sinful. Very sinful indeed, Jim. What a brilliant story. Thanks so much. The Waves of Tory.
have been ruined for me. If you're not sure about the Waves of Tory reference, well, it's a very respectable traditional Irish dance. And that is pretty much it for this podcast. If you'd like to tell a story at 10 by 9 go along to the guidelines page on our website, 10 by 9com and get in touch. We are always, always, always looking for storytellers. If you enjoyed this podcast, be sure to tell everyone about it and maybe even give us a rating or a review wherever you get your fix of 10 by 9 It really does help. This podcast was written, produced, presented, mixed and published by Paul Doran, so it's all my fault. And if you've ever wondered who makes our amazing and hilarious posters, that's Podrick. Thanks to you for listening, but thanks most of all to Lynn Graham, Maria Mulliman and Jim Livingston and his sainted mother. I'll be back with another podcast soon, but for now, bye-bye.